Good evening. The moon is gone, and this is quietly yours. just in time to hear the third part of our continuing mini-series, Fragments. If you haven't heard parts 1 and 2, go check them out now, or this might not make a whole lot of sense. Before we dive in, I want to remind you that patreon.com slash quietlyyours is where you can go to support the show financially, if you're able to of course. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, and there's extra content and rewards available for all our patrons. You can also find us on social media, we're quietly podcast on all platforms. We'd love to hear what you think of Fragments so far. Got any theories on what's going on in the house? Be sure to let us know. With all that out of the way, this is part three. It's called Fragile Pipes. I've known the Shadow Man for most of my life. I don't remember much of my life before this place, but I know the Shadow Man was there. He's been there a long time. He's here now, in the kitchen. I can't see him, but I know he's there. Right behind me. It's morning again, and here I am, Staring down at my empty plates. And perhaps I should know better. But I try for the window anyway. Things have been changing. Memories have been coming back to me. Maybe things will be different this time. But they're not. I've reached the middle of the kitchen. And I'm paralysed once again. There's a sharp pain, and I hit the floor hard. I'm by the window now, the big one, the one in the study the one that I crashed through. It's completely intact, of course. Everything resets here. Nothing's permanent. But today, today things are different. There's someone here. He's standing out in the garden of the house. If that's what you want to call this endless green plain, he's just staring, staring up at the house. He wears this old brown suit with one of those thick, patterned 70s ties. He looks like he's just walked out of a period drama. 
And then, on his hands, he wears these two brown leather gloves, cracked and worn from frequent use. I don't know who this man is, or why he's here, but he's the first person I've seen in this house. The first one who actually looks like a person anyway. I, n I need to contact him somehow. Uh, but how? I've tried a million times and there's no way out of this house. I raise a hand and I try to wave to get his attention, but there's no reaction. Even though I'm, I'm sure he's staring right at me. And then the phone rings, which is interesting. I didn't know there was a phone. I turn and it's right there on the desk of the study. Even more interesting. I don't remember there being a desk. I walk over to the phone and answer the call, but there's nothing. There's no one there. There's no dial tone. Not even any noise on the line. It's just dead. I put down the receiver and move back across to the window. The man's gone now. Will he be back? Can he even help me? Or is this just another grotesque vision conjured up by this horrible place? I realize now I can hear the sound of a running tap. I head into the hallway and down to the bathroom. There are no closed doors now. I'm free to go where I please. And in the bathroom, I find the bathtub nearly full, but the water is sickening red and the smell, it's blood. A bathtub full of blood. And sitting on the surface is a small yellow rubber duck dancing around the waves from the flowing tap. I reach out and shut it off, but the duck continues to sway back and forth hypnotically. There's a vibrating noise now, a metallic clambering as the pipes begin to shake under pressure. It builds and builds and, inevitably, the iron buckles. The rusted old metal splits open like a banana skin and litres of blood flow out like a severed artery. It's warm against my feet as it flows past. But after a few moments, the flow becomes a drip and it's all washed away leaving a wet trail of blood across the floor. Out from the bathroom, across the carpet of the hallway, and to the top of the stairs. It hasn't spread out like a puddle. It's flowed carefully and intentionally, leaving a trail. I've got nothing to lose. I follow it to the stairs and down them, at the bottom, the scarlet path twists and snakes down to the large main doors. 
disappearing underneath. I walk over, there's a door handle, so I take it, I twist, and the door clicks open. Fresh air is like a wave of relief across my face, blowing through my hair. I take a deep breath. In front of me is a set of descending steps. The blood drips down them before coming to a rest as a puddle at the bottom. Beyond the steps, the grass begins, but there's a gravel path down the centre, away from the house, a driveway. I don't remember this being here before. And then, a little further on, a tan Ford Cortina is parked with one door open. A way out? trap, maybe. There isn't much else beyond the path and the car. The path continues forward until it reaches the fog and disappears. There are no trees, no gate, nothing. An endless sea of fog beneath a cloudy grey sky. If I try to leave, I don't know where I'll end up. But it's a risk worth taking. I make my way down the steps and I rush towards the Cortina. I reach it, slide inside, and slam the door closed behind me. In my mind I'm praying as I reach out and feel for the ignition. My hands touch keys and I let out a relieved breath. I twist them and the old engine croaks to life. With my hands on the steering wheel, glance down at the wing mirror, and for the first time, I get a look at the outside of the house. It's smaller than I imagined. From the inside, there's lots of rooms, and the place feels like a labyrinth. But from the outside, it's small, constructed from red brick. The old wooden window frames and a spreading mass of ivy climbing up the side of the building. It looks nice. From the outside, neglected, but nice, a happy place. I suppose it could have been once, before it came, before it became the ghoulish place that it is now. But I've given this place too much thought. I turn my attention back to the path in front of me and prepare for the next chapter whatever that might be. And then I feel the car move as someone shifts their weight and there's a black blur as something is thrown over my head. A power cord, I think, which wraps around my neck and I feel the warm, gloved hands at the back of my neck pressing on my nape as the man pulls and tightens and the black plastic digs deep into my throat. I reach back, my fingers scrambling in a desperate attempt to free myself, but he's too strong. I see him in the rearview mirror, still and emotionless as he squeezes tighter. I struggle for breath, but the air won't come. I try to pull away, but I'm pinned to the seat. I try to free myself, but I can't. In front of me, 
on the black plastic of the dashboard is a yellow rubber duck sitting, watching. The pressure builds up in my skull, a numbness spreads down my body, and everything begins to go dark. I'm still clawing at my throat when I finally lose consciousness. I remember, not everything, but pieces. The man in the old suit, with the slicked back hair in the ancient car, and the loon strangler. He stalked his victims for weeks before he struck, followed them, taunted them with phone calls. There was no caller ID, not back then. That was always really useful. The calls would start silent at first, and then he'd start to breathe down the line, or laugh, whatever it took to reduce his victim to a nervous wreck. And all the while, he would follow them, day and night, learning their every move, memorizing their schedule. And then, when he knew for sure that they would be alone, he would strike, strangling the life out of them, burying their body in the foggy moors. The Loon Strangler. His calling card, originally, was a duck. A little rubber duck that he would leave at the scene of every crime to taunt the police, inflate his ego, or, more accurately, to provide some well-needed tension and plot escalation, if I'm being absolutely honest. Well, the ducks were the original idea, anyway. But the Duck Strangler doesn't exactly have the right ring to it. Well, the book was set in Canada, although I've never been. So the publisher suggested he leave an origami loon at the scene of his crimes instead. So, the Loon Strangler he became, and the book was titled Loon. In hindsight, I can't say I think all that much of it. Too trashy like an 80s straight-to-VHS horror. But it sold, and it sold more than expected. I remember writing it so well. But that's all. I remember my protagonist being inside his head, his thoughts, his feelings. But my thoughts still elude me. My own past, a mystery. I remember every chapter of that novel, but I still don't remember my own name. I'm back in the kitchen. There's the smell of bacon in the air and a plate full of eggs sitting on the table in front of me. I'm suddenly hungry. Starving, even. God, that feels good. I know it's supposed to be unpleasant, hunger, but I haven't felt it in so long. I'd almost forgotten. 
for a moment, I'm, I'm human again, and it's wonderful. Right beside me, her head buried in the fridge, is my mother. Just the sight of her is a comfort. Family, food, smells, feelings. It's all overwhelming and I feel as though I might cry, but any fire of joy is quickly extinguished as I feel him creeping up behind me. The Shadow Man. Not a man, exactly. More just the shadow part. A vaporous black mass, its arms outstretched. With a click, the toast pops out of the toaster. The fridge door closes, softly, and my mother heads across to the other side of the room, towards the big, bright window. The bright blue of her dress is caught in the sunlight as she goes. But she never makes it to the other side of the room. She pauses in the middle, squeezes a handful of her apron, and lifts it to her nose. Outside, the sun vanishes behind a cloud. My mother turns to me and lowers her apron to reveal a large red splotch bleeding across the material, the yellow turning crimson, the printed cartoon duct soaked in deep vermilion. A stream of red drips from her nose. Her eyes are wide with surprise and confusion and pain and sorrow, and then she falls. Her knees hit the floor with a thud, and then her body crumples in on itself. She's lying still on the floor, and I feel the shadow man's arms wrap around me. I remember the funeral well. The weather was nice. A bright sun in a vivid blue sky, warm and comforting. The whole thing was nice, really. The people, the mourners, my family. They were able to stay positive all day. They didn't cry. They didn't mope. They laughed. Told stories about my mother's life, the way she's touched them, and the memories she's left them. As far as funerals go, it was as nice a day as you could ask for, especially for a child who's saying goodbye to someone for the first time. I realized when I grew up that they were just being strong for me. There were still tears. They were just hidden. I would have preferred to see the tears.
it didn't really matter how nice the funeral was. How comforting my family was. It didn't matter how bright the sun shone down over the cemetery. None of it was any comfort for me. I think I've always been afraid of cemeteries. My whole life. As long as I can remember, anyway. I suppose you could say I've grown out of it in my adult life. Although, I'd be lying if I said I didn't still get a shiver down my spine when walking between the graves. Back then, though, as a kid, I was terrified by them. I really don't know why. Maybe I'd seen too many zombie movies or something. I don't know. All I know is I would freak out whenever we visited a cemetery. Or even just drove past one. Whenever I saw one, I was haunted by these images of decaying corpses and yellowing skeletons rising from their graves in search of their next victims. And when we buried my mother, all I could think about was those monstrous corpses clawing their way out of their graves, tunneling through the ground to my mother's coffin and pulling her from her breast. I guess that image stuck with me. I didn't realise it. But it was there. Deep down in my subconscious. And shortly after I signed my first book deal, it surfaced. I always loved westerns as a kid. I think it's because my granddad was a fan of them. He grew up back in that era when... Westerns ruled the cinema. You don't really see them these days. But back then, you couldn't avoid them. He had so many of them on VHS. Some were official. Most were not. Taped off the TV. He was a talented hunter. Not for game or treasure but for random afternoon TV screenings of obscure 50s westerns. Name a western, and he'd find an airing and get you a tape. I stayed at his house one night a week for most of my childhood. And so, what else were we going to do? We watched westerns. A lot of them. He'd make popcorn and buy us some horrendously sugary drinks. And then we'd pull all of the cushions off the couch, pile them up on the floor, and sit there, transfixed on the black and white images, dancing across the screen. I owe him a lot, really. Feeding my imagination a feast each week. If it wasn't for his passion and his encouragement, who knows if I ever would have put pen to paper. But I did. And I loved westerns. And I signed a book deal. And I remembered. I remembered the nightmares that would haunt my childhood. The town at sunset was the result. South Dakota, 1882. I actually did some research this time, after a couple of review columnists took issue with my piss-poor interpretation of Canada. I don't think my South Dakota ended up all that realistic either, to be honest. 
But in a novel about killer cowboy zombies, how much realism are people expecting anyway? I wasn't too confident with the idea for that novel, not at first. It seemed too thin. A good idea, but not fleshed out enough. I worried the setting would be inconsequential. That the characters weren't strong enough to really make the reader care. Well, it did really well anyway, so what do I know? I guess something about the idea just resonated with people. Maybe we're all afraid, deep down, of our eventual neighbours in the graveyard. The moonlight crystallises on the window panes and scatters around the bedroom once again. I'm alone this time. The chair beside me is empty now. And in the corner, he stands. The Shadow Man. My oldest creation. First spilled onto the page when I was ten years old and following me every day of my life since. A minute passes, and the paralysis fades. But still, I don't move. Every day in this place is a battle. And there is no fight left in me. Well, that leaves us with some questions yet to be answered. Be sure to join us again for part four, where more will be revealed. Until then, I am quietly yours, and you are quietly mine.